St Swithin is said to yearly christen our apples for consumption. Till St Swithin's day be past, the apples be not fit to tast, to taste. Or at least so goes the old half-rhyme. Legend has it that apple grower and Saxon bishop St Swithin, upon his death, wished to be buried outdoors amongst the common people and amongst his apple trees. But upon posthumously becoming a patron saint, his body was dug up and placed in a new shrine inside Winchester Cathedral. His displeasure was instantaneous, enduring and damp. The heavens opened and it rained for a full biblical 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's the folklore. What about the science? For so often our fruity folk stories belie a proper scientific apple core. See what I did there. St Swithin's Day is on the 15th of July, and it's around when the jet stream settles down into a rhythm, bringing us either warm high pressure from the south, or wet and cold arctic air from the north. Basically, it's at this point we discover how rubbish our summer is going to be. And seeing as apples certainly benefit from a downpour, apple growers would be wise to leave their orchards full and to wait for the jet stream, or indeed St Swithin, to make up its slash his mind. But seeing as St Swithin's Day is the 15th of July, and by my reckoning today should be the 29th of June, we have still got a little time to wait ahead of us. So, time for us all to digest some apple facts in this week's Trees A Crowd. And to kick us off, here is a little Bella Hardy, fresh from the tree. A pudding, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British. Now, before I skip gaily off into my orchard of botany and trivia, it's important to state what exactly we're talking about this week, because when you encounter an apple tree growing in the wild on the British Isles, it may not be exactly what you think it to be. For in the British Isles, the apple is so widely domesticated and so freely interbreeding that there are arguably four kinds of wild apple that you are likely to encounter on your wanderings. These are one... A true native crab apple, which may or may not be this week's tree. It is. Two, an escaped cultivated ornamental crab apple tree designed to look pretty in your garden. Three, a feral apple, usually grown from an apple core, one chucked out of a car window, open top bus, low flying zeppelin, etc. Or four, a mix and match hybrid of any of the above. In fact, all of our apples hybridise so incredibly readily, and with so many different kinds, many botanists are afraid we will lose the genetic purity of the genuine native crab apple altogether. In several European countries, the crab apple is already on the IUCN red list. But the only true native apple to our shores is this week's tree. You can find it in the hedgerows of the Isle of Wight, within the forest boundaries of North Wales, and you can even locate it on Shetland which is where, many eons ago, on one of those long winter northern hemisphere evenings, a particularly sultry apple caught the eye of one sexually frustrated crustacean and made, that's not true, and made tree number 23. Crab, crab, crab apple. The crab apple. Malus sylvestris. Translated literally, the forest apple. Ancient wood pastures, particularly oak woodlands, are often dotted with plentiful crab apples. The thinking is that early man grazed cattle amongst the trees, the acorns and crabs providing fodder, and the cattle providing meat and a form of free woodland management. 
As such, an evidence of a prevalence of ancient crabapple trees can be found in traditional cattle farming areas today, such as Galloway in Scotland. And at one site in Denmark, it was found that 90% of the crabapples had grown up out of cow packs, cow acting there both as seed disperser and organic fertiliser, all under one beautiful bovine banner. And the link between the wild crab and cattle goes further. The decline in crabapples over time across Europe is also believed to tie in, at least in part, to the extinction of the auroch, a species of large wild cattle with mahusive horns. Fewer aurochs grazing wild mean fewer wild apples that can take root in auroch pats. A crabapple is small and a crabapple is hard, with a tart and tangy flavour, also says Helen Keating of the Woodland Trust. She and I would both recommend cooking them first or using the abundance of pectin they possess to make jams or make jellies. In its wildest form, the crab possesses brutal thorns. Its branches are often gnarled, twisted, crabbed, if you will, hence the name. But like last week's pear, a truly wild crab is a slow-growing plant, requires much light and is often pushed out to the fringes of woodland. But given enough time, it can reach around 15 metres in height and have a crown as large as around 17 metres across. The branches, prior to blossoming into beautiful, sweet-scented white flowers, are laden with brown pointed buds, each with downy tufts of hair on their tips. But you're also likely to find the branches full of something a little more mysterious. An interloper, a parasite. Mistletoe. The druids believed the gods placed mistletoe here by lightning bolts, and as such believed it to possess magical properties. But in reality, the druid's lightning is attracted to the water source the thirsty apple trees often grow upon, and the mistletoe is there to steal water and nutrients from the crab apple, tapping its roots into the tree's branches and using the apple's resources to make its own poisonous berries. Hence why mistletoe is now synonymous with Christmas hanky-panky, for nothing says fancy a festive snog better than poison, parasitism and the potential of being struck by lightning. There is something about the apple that seems intrinsically British, which is great, especially if you're making a podcast about native species. It is part of our culture. We are proud of it. We smother apples in the supermarket with those tiny little Union Jack stickers, and A, the first letter of the English alphabet, is always for apple. I'll ignore the fact that the first letter of the Ogham alphabet, a Celtic tree alphabet, is the birch tree. That is for a later episode. But really, British appleness is a modern myth, one born, as are most things, in inverted commas, British, out of Victorian obsession. Robert Hogg, author of the 1851 smash hit British Pomology, set up the British Pomological Association in 1854 to push new varieties of apples upon prospective British growers. The Granny Smith, for example, one of the Englishest of apples, comes from New South Wales although admittedly it was planted there by Maria Ann Granny Smith, who was originally from Sussex. She emigrated to Australia in 1838 to help with agricultural development within the emerging Australian colonies. But if we truly must brand apples with a British identity, it's what Liz Truss certainly wants, we should look not at our Victorian orchard varieties, but applaud instead our very own native crab apple. Back in the days of yore, our wild crab, along with an apple native to the mountains of Kazakhstan, Malus siversii, were the mother and father to almost all domestic apples. You see an orchard or even an Australian Granny Smith, 
Go back far enough and it's a Kazakhstani mountain apple that had sex with our very own native forest apple. And still today, modern domestic apples rely upon our little crab. Today, most commercial apples, having been bred within an inch of their lives, are, like most hybrids, self-sterile, meaning the trees of the same species are incompatible to each other's pollen. It's nature's fallback plan against excessive incest. To get fruit, you need to plant individuals of a different variety amongst your desired crop or within the bordering hedgerows. And traditionally, the tree most commonly used for the purpose was, you've guessed it, our crabapple. You see, crabapples are not only self-fertile, but they also have a longer flowering season than normal orchard apples, which tend to flower at staggered times. So one crabapple tree can serve as a pollinator for lots of different orchard apples all at the same time. This is also why, were you to plant the seed from a Braeburn you bought at the supermarket, the apple tree that grew from that pip would not produce a Braeburn. Rather, some odd hybrid apple, probably not very tasty, a cross between its one Braeburn parent and whatever apple species was used to pollinate it. Quite probably, our crab. But perhaps most inspiring of all, our hedgerows may often possess ancestors of crab apples that predate the orchards that they surround. Since the Bronze Age, farmers have gone into forests and carved from them small fields to graze cattle or plant crops. Gradually, more and more meadows were created this way, separated by mere strips of the original woodland. These strips are our hedgerows. Descendants of ancient crab apples, spindle, blackthorn, hawthorns, dogwood, hazel and holly, a whole host of our native trees, live in these strips, our ancient hedges, and represent almost all that is left of these most ancient of habitats. As our society's agricultural mindset shifted at the end of the world wars, from the traditional to the industrial, and now on again to the automatic and chemical, we are increasingly seeing a tidying up of our countryside that is having disastrous repercussions upon our environment. We prefer larger fields with fewer hedges, and we reroute streams to accommodate our giant machinery, and sometimes well-meant gestures also have undesirable results like the stripping out of those ancient hedgerows in favour of species like a non-native alder, the good intention being to naturally return lost nitrogen to overworked dying soil or to provide a windbreak to stop what little topsoil is left from blowing away. More on that in an upcoming episode too. But since World War II, parts of our country have lost as much as 50% of our ancient hedgerows. And although recently this decline has been halted, there is simply no amount of replanting that can replace what has already been lost. But of those irreplaceable ancient hedgerows that remain standing, all are abundant in biodiversity. The crabapple alone supports 93 unique species of invertebrates. Its leaves are a fantastic host for caterpillars of the brown hair streak and black letter hair streak butterflies, for the green pug moth and eyed hawk moth. The flowers provide early pollen and nectar for hosts of insects, especially bees, and the fruits are eaten by bullfinches, crows, blackbirds, foxes, badgers, voles, my dog Indy, and foragers from the Woodland Trust, but unfortunately not as many aurochs as it once did. And as well as food and shelter for wildlife, it gave Isaac Newton gravity, it gave Eve original sin, and it has given me cider. Symbolically, the apple is a fruit of two halves. On one side, the Latin name for apple, malus, translates literally as evil one. It's from this same Latin source that we get malice, malignant, malformed, and even malaria, which means bad air. 
This unfortunate name, unsurprisingly, stems from the Old Testament's Eve and her infamous encounter with the biblical apple of knowledge and sin. But in Greek mythology, the apple was associated with Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and in Norse mythology, the apple was synonymous with eternal beauty. The Viking goddess Idun would feed her brothers and sister deities golden apples to retain their immortality and youthful good looks. That was until Loki stole them all to give to Taylor Swift in exchange for his own TV show, and the gods of Asgard began to wither, age, and ended up looking like Anthony Hopkins with an eye patch. I think I've got that right. A similar immortality ritual took place in Wales, where traditionally apple blossoms would be laid upon a coffin, allowing the resident to adopt a youthful appearance in the afterlife. But other native Britons got a little apple saucier. The Celts would burn crabapple wood as a fertility and mating ritual, and English folklore links the crabapple's pips with love and with lust. Were you to throw two pips into a fire, one representing you and the other your paramour, what happened next would define your future happiness. If the pips exploded, sizzled or popped, you'd find your love to be true. But if they merely charred, your affair was set to fail. Worse still, if the pip named for you were to jump towards your lover's pip, with the lover's pip remaining motionless, then it was divined that you had more interest in them than the other way around. The apple of your eye was rotten. Until researching this episode, I was of the belief that Shakespeare had coined the phrase apple of your eye. Oberon says it in Midsummer Night's Dream. Flower of this purple dye, hit with Cupid's archery, sink in apple of his eye. But it turns out it was actually first written down by Alfred the Great in an English translation of a list of Latin rules for clergymen. It simply meant pupil, and it isn't raunchy at all. That said, Shakespeare was obsessed with the downright sexy sultriness of burning crab apples. Again, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare has his puck leer over his crabs. And sometime lurk I in a gossip's bowl, in very likeness of a roasted crab. And when she drinks... Against her lips I bob, and on her withered dewlap pour the ale. And again, this time in Love's Labour's Lost, a play all about the underestimation of love, the pursuit of pleasure, and the damaging hand of fate. Don Armado ends the whole play, referring to a time of lust left open to happenstance, a time when... Roasted crabs hiss in the bowl. What a time to be alive. Thanks again to Adam Sop for being my resident Shakespearean voice for these past two weeks. But, if Adam will forgive me, allow me to quote Don Armado once more. You that way, we this way. For it is time to end this week's episode before you all get crabby. Be sure to leave us a review on Crab Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on Crab Spotify, or find us wherever get your sounds like it's named for a crustacean but isn't podcasts. And we will see you next week for the Hawthorns. Bye-bye. Up who day, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British.